Good to have you all again. Um, so I thought what I would do today um, is just review slightly some of what we covered last week uh, as a way of sort of segueing into what we didn't get to last week, which was um, what, I th what I think of as sort of a, a biblical theology of place or just a, a quick sort of tour, uh, certainly through the opening chapters of scripture um, that I think can be read in light of our, our theme of place in an interesting way. And then uh, move on to, uh, to some other considerations. But as I thought about last week um, and what I, what I wanted to kind of stick from last week, there were a couple of things that came to my mind as, as I was thinking back to it, and that is um, that there are a variety of ways of thinking about place, right? So that part of what I, uh, at least I think is useful about thinking deeply about place uh, is that it opens up new vistas, new ways of thinking about it. Um, and deepens our experience because it sort of enhances sort of our thoughtfulness about what we're doing and where we're living and, and, and how we relate to the place that is our, our home. And so um, the fact that we would be looking at place in various ways, I think was part of what I wanted to get across, um, certainly at the very particular level, right? At the level of, of just the, um, the specific place that we inhabit and becoming more aware of it. I, I, you know, I hope that is something that kind of comes out of our consideration of place, that we learn to be a little bit more attentive to wherever we find ourselves, um, whether that's in North Florida uh, or if we find ourselves away from here eventually, um, even at to the level of just the, the buildings we inhabit, um, just becoming a little bit more attuned to the way that they shape our experience. And so there's that very concrete uh, and particular um, level of analysis where we will uh, hopefully think a little bit more carefully about the, the immediate surroundings that are a part of, of where we live and look at them again, as I said, uh, in a new way. It, so this is sort of dark and morbid, but uh, I became a little bit more aware of Gainesville in an interesting way um, just yesterday. And so I had this vague uh, awareness of the fact that there had been these um, grisly murders back in 1990 um, for a brief period of time. And I, I think most of you probably have, have heard something about that. Uh, and I come to work up on uh, 34th um, where you have that wall with all of these sort of ever-changing uh, graffiti there. And, uh, and I had always seen this little plaque on the floor that said, um, you know, remember, uh, is it August 1990, I think, or something like that. And, and I was always a little curious about it, but never had never remembered it when I could look it up. And so I finally did, and I realized that, that it was in fact a memorial um, commemorating, in a sense, the lives uh, that were lost during that, that streak of murders in 1990, uh, and that that wall was uh, a part of that remembrance, and, and there was a section of that wall that had the names of the people who were killed, et cetera. So again, like I said, very grisly and, and unpleasant in some respects, but I mention it only because um, when I mentioned that to a couple of people around here, I said, oh yes, and the, and the plaques with their names on the palm trees. Um, I thought, no, I, I never noticed that. And so sure enough, I drove by after that and I, it's one of those things where you see it and then you ask yourself, how did I drive up and down this way, you know, 100 plus times and never notice it? And I think we all have um, maybe similar experiences. So again, this seems like a sort of a, a trivial uh, discovery. But what it highlighted to me is how we can be in a place and never quite become fully aware of it, right? That it requires attention for us to recognize a place for what it is, right? And that we very often get sort of habituated to places in a way that, in fact, blinds us to what is actually there. Um, 
And I, I think that maybe we've had, um, all of us have had sort of instances like that. So again, coming to know a place, paying attention to the place in which we live in a very concrete way. Um, and then also this idea that, that, that place is sort of a nexus of human experience that interestingly ties together time. Uh, so place and time, you know, I've, I've taught these two classes now and they're both kind of related to one another. Um, and it, it will be hard to sort of speak about place without recognizing that it also kind of binds us in time, right? So it, it creates, as that example of that memorial does, right? It, it creates an awareness of things that have happened here in times past, right? Um, or if we mentally walk our way through our childhood homes, for example, that, that physical space as we recall it, and of course, if we can go there, maybe all the more, um, all the more will our memory be triggered in such a way that we'll remember things that happen there that are almost like, um, you know, we'll, we'll speak specifically about this in a few weeks, but and I, and there's this quote where uh, Michelle de Certeau talks about haunted places, by which she means not haunted by, by literal ghosts, but just haunted by memories, right? That you go to a place and, and things have happened there, the place retains some kind of, uh, it, it I don't want to be too mystical about this, right? But those those events are gathered in memory. That they're layers of memory that you could peel back if only you become aware of them, um, and so that the place becomes a collector, as it were, of the human experiences that transpire there, and that it also it becomes a heart of a community. We we all have been immersed in virtual communities, right? So even what we are doing right now, right, uh, around the screen are people gathered in very different places. Um, and so something happens here. I don't want to trivialize it or minimize it. I'm, I'm glad that we're able to do that. Um, I'm glad that uh, folks far and wide are able to kind of partake in what we're doing at the study center. Uh, and so we are, we are a kind of community of sorts coalescing around this sort of virtual space. Uh, but ordinarily, human communities sort of coalesce around concrete places, right? Pla specific places. I, I don't want to use that metaphor concrete too, too um, indiscriminately. Uh, but there are places where we gather around which our communities form. And so that place becomes, again, this, this place that is, place becomes this place. Place becomes a, a reality uh, that is central to our human experience. And then, uh, kind of wrapping up what we covered last week, we spent in both classes, both the Zoom and the, um, in the live version, the, the in-person version, I had quoted this, uh, we read this quote by Simone Weil where she talks about how rootedness is one of the most um, important human needs, one of the most vital human needs. And she was writing in the midst of World War II, uh, hope, looking with hope towards its end and how French society might be sort of rebuilt. And so she writes this book, uh, which in English is translated, The Need for Roots. And so this, this metaphor of rootedness, of being able to, to say that I have roots somewhere, for, for Ve, it includes place, but it includes a little bit more than that. It also has a sense of belonging to a community, uh, a sense of future and past that sort of, again, coalesce around the particular place. And it's, it, it reminds us that when we say, I know my place, right, we, there, there's a double sense to that, right? In, in one regard, I know my place in that I know the, the coordinates of my geographic location, right? I, I'm at the study center, uh, I'm at my office, I'm at Pascal's. Um, and so we sort of know where we are. We're not lost in physical space. But there is another sense in which we speak of knowing our place, right? Which is to say that we know where we fit in in a, in a larger scheme of things, so to speak, whether that's sort of socially or even as has ordinarily been the case in human history, the modern period accepted, 
that we, we have a sense of place in a kind of cosmic ordering of things, right? That we know where we belong in the, what you know, used to be called the great chain of being. And so there's a, there's a sense in which we, we have a sense of, of rootedness, almost a kind of metaphysical, spiritual, ethical rootedness. And place becomes a kind of metaphor for that, a very useful way of talking about that. And then I, I also mentioned Hannah Arendt, who around the same time as Vey, writing a little bit later, but a contemporary of Vey's, who lived longer, uh, wrote about the danger that attaches itself to being uprooted, uh, to lacking roots, and how it, for, in her opinion, became sort of the seedbed of, of totalitarian movements. What I, what I find really interesting, and I'll, I'll now begin transitioning us to some um, new material that we didn't quite get to, but what I find really interesting is that when Vey is tasked, Simone Vey is tasked with thinking about how do you sort of start from scratch, right? In, in the aftermath of the cataclysm that was World War II, that, that leveled Europe, that undid, uh, it, it's had such a profound moral effect on, on European society. How do you begin anew? How do you rebuild? And that in her mind, one had to go to these very fundamental realities um, to ask not just the question of human rights, but the question of human obligations, and that those obligations had to be grounded in, in human needs, and that we really had to understand what does the human soul need? In other words, what is good for the human being? And that part of her answer to that was this, this idea of, of knowing or having a sense of place, of being rooted. And I mention that only because I think we, we, we are not living through a World War II style cataclysm, obviously, but I think we're, we are living to some degree through a period of unsettledness, uh, of transition, uh, of social upheaval, to say nothing of sort of social turmoil, um, with a lot of sort of thoughtful people kind of wondering about how, how is it that we move forward productively as a society? How do we stop splintering and figure out a way of, of um, of being able to live with one another in, in, with less acrimony. Right? We're asking these fundamental questions because our society seems to be uh, kind of th thrown up into a, a state of confusion. The pandemic layered on all of that, of course, uh, makes that all the more complicated and urgent. And so maybe it's not a bad idea to go back to these fundamental questions uh, about human needs so that we can begin to think about this question of human flourishing. Right? What, is, what is good for the human soul, for the human person, um, given the kinds of creatures that we are. So I, I mention that not because I have a ready set of answers to that, but I, because I think it's an important question to ask. And the question of place, I think, is part of that. Right? In, in one respect, it, we don't think about it. We just take it for granted. We are where we are. And, and we don't even really necessarily, the we is very generic here, maybe you do, right? But I think a lot of people don't um, think about place as something Whose, whose relation, for, for which their relationship to place becomes an, uh, an essential part of, of their capacity to be happy, to feel a sense of satisfaction, um, to feel settled and rooted. I don't know that we give that too much thought, but I think we should, right? That's sort of the bottom line of, um, of that train of thought. So what, what I'd like to do now then is to move us uh, to a couple of items that we left out. And there was a, um, a paragraph from Wilfred McClay that I included in the last handout. And you know, forgive me if I, as I do a little toggling here. Um, I can certainly, let's see, we can, I can share that screen so we can sort of read it together whether you have it on hand or not. 
And so here is what, um, what Wilfred McClay wrote. And, and McClay writes this um, as, a, as part of an introduction to a collection of essays uh, called Why Place Matters. So the, the, this is a, a very useful collection of essays um, on this theme. And in its introduction, Wilfred McClay, who's an American historian, uh, tells us that in both its literal and its figurative meanings, place refers not only to a geographical spot, but to a defined niche in the social order, one's place in the world. Thus, when we say that we have found our place, we are speaking not only of a physical location, but of the achievement of a stable and mature personal identity within a coherent social order, so that we can provide an answer to the questions, who are you? Where did you come from? Where's your home? Where do you fit in the order of things? Hence, McClay goes on to say, it is not surprising that a disruption or weakening in our experience of geographical place will be reflected in a similar disruption, in a, uh, similar disruptions in our sense of personal identity. The two things go together. So let me pause on, on that for just a moment um, because I, I want to sort of ask you what you think about that. So what McClay, I think, is doing is, is tying a, a, a pretty... Um, tying together pretty closely the idea of a sense of place and a sense of identity. And I think his, his notion is, is that when you, when you weaken your sense of place, you simultaneously weaken your sense of identity, and that this is sort of part of the story of the modern world. Um, what, do you, what do you think about that? I mean, do you think that there is a, a, such a strong link between place and identity in the way that he suggests there? Is that... Does that ring true to you or not? And, and feel free again to just un unmute yourself. And there are a few of us here that I think we can manage that without having to, you know, do the icons and whatnot. Um, I think I actually, at, I was thinking about it and at first. I disagreed, but then I thought some more and I, I realized that I think I might actually agree. Um, still developing that, but I was disagreeing because I thought, uh, well, I've, when I move from place to place, usually it's the people that change. That's what, um, where I, my sense of identity feels um, impacted. But then I realized that, well, whenever I go back to just the location of New York, where I'm from, um, there's a, diff a certain kind of feeling in the climate, the atmosphere, a sense that I can breathe better. Um, there, the trees are all around, and uh, there are mountains and hills that are numerous not crazy like Montana, but, um, and I, I feel a deeper sense of belonging there. Um, whereas compared with Florida, it's like if I'm in the middle of Florida, it feels like I'm not quite sure where I am. Um, at the same time, when I, I went to undergrad in Wheaton in Illinois, um, and I felt like I had, I didn't know where I was because I was used to being somewhere that's near an ocean. And that was a preference point somewhere I always wanted to go back um, and it took me a long time to I, eventually I just got onto the roof on the buildings of the astronomy one because you can't get on there uh, to use your telescope and I looked around and I had to get a sense of everything that was around me and I, I looked at the North Star to see where that was because that was um, always a reference point for me um, and that was when I started to get a grasp of where I was and accept that okay the way it works in the middle of the country is that you're not just in the middle of nowhere that it's people localized, not next to an ocean, but 
by other towns that happen to be in the area, or in our case, the Great Lakes. And those are the reference points here. And so I think that, I guess right now, I'm agreeing with the statement. And affected kind of how I think of myself as well with respect to how I relate to all those locations. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. That's good. Thank you, Dave. To take a, a kind of extreme uh, example that's maybe a little more negative, I, I certainly agree. Like, there can be a really strong positive connection between place and identity. Is uh, I think David just said, I feel the same way about a lot of places I've been. Um, but I think the, the comments about like um, knowing your place, um, thinking about particularly the history of. Uh, race in the in this country, particularly in the Jim Crow South, that was sort of the mm-hmm. way that whites would sort of speak of how mm-hmm. Jim Crow would be to say black people people of color need to know their place, yes. and so in a way that mm-hmm. is sort of way that identity can become kind of tied to place mm-hmm. in a really sort of evil way, yeah. I guess, for lack of a better term. That, mm-hmm. You know, we have sort of geographic segregation, spatial, but also a kind of um, social hierarchy yeah. that creates certain places for people and then that's kind of they reinforce each other um, and so I, I, I don't really know sort of how to yeah. tie that back other than that's just kind of what came to my mind and I guess that's kind of a way that place can be something our attachment to a place or our idea of that can be very can have a lot of virtue but can also bring with it a lot of vices I guess um yeah, no, I think that's a, I'm glad you mentioned that. In fact, um, each time I've read that, I've, I've, I've wanted to kind of address this question about uh, the, the, the more pejorative sense in which people might say, you need to know your place um, in the way that you, you described exactly, Madison. Um, and so that there can be uh, unjust ways of structuring our relationship to place in which our relationship to place gets structured, right? And that not all of the memories that coalesce around the place are necessarily pleasant memories, right? So there, there is something um, very much to that that at least needs to be said. So yeah, thank you. Thank you for saying it. Um, I, I'm reminded, so last week in the Zoom class, but less in the uh, in-person class, I, um, we talked a little bit about how the American mythos seems to be more closely attuned to the idea of, of movement and starting over and picking up and um, and again, you know, the people who, who settled this, to say nothing, of course, of the indigenous people they displaced, but the people who settled here are, are moving away from their homes to find new homes, to start new lives, and then the frontier becomes so prominent. Uh, and so there's this majority report, I think, in American culture where um, we, we are ready to detach ourselves from place in the pursuit of opportunity, in the pursuit of a better life, etc. Uh, but there's a, a kind of minority report, and I, I think of um, the Scarlet Letter, which I think has been ruined by making high schoolers read it, because I don't know that high schoolers are quite ready to read it. It's a really great book, and if you've not read it, you should revisit it. Um, but it is interesting that Hawthorne has Hester Prynne, at the end of it all, come back to Salem, um, and, and that there's this theme that runs through it where she, she feels, in some sense, drawn to that place even though obviously it's a place with some negative, a lot of negative resonances, 
um, a place where, where she was an object of shame for a long period of time. But that there's this theme where Hawthorne seems to suggest that her redemption has to happen there. In other words, that, that redemption isn't fleeing our problems, the site of our conflicts. It's not running away from necessarily, but it is remaining in place in order to resolve. Now, I don't want to offer that as a sort of a, uh, a prescription for all people at all times, but that there is something, um, I think, important in that that's reflected in, uh, in Hawthorne's novel. That, that the place is, is a place where, well, that the impulse to run, right? So I'm an Avid Brothers fan. I, I, I have a great uh, lyric, and uh, I saw you smile there. Maybe you can remind me this way. Um, it, you know, it, it, the idea was that if, if you run, make sure you run to something and not away from. And that we have this impulse to run away, right? To, to think that if we just change our place, things will be better for us, but that there's a virtue in remaining in place and working out our redemptions in, in the sites where the sins have happened, as in the case of Hester Prynne, right? But this, this minority report about the importance of staying in place um, as, as an essential factor of our moral development, uh, I think is interesting as well. And so, yes, all that is to say that there are positive and negative valences to the experience of place. Uh, and I think then the, the moral question um, is something like, is, is this something I'm compelled to remain in place to resolve? Is it better for me to remain here and to work out what has happened in place? Um, or is it important to, to move to another place, right? There's, there are, there, it's, it's, not a, um, it's not a question that has a, a, a pat answer to it, but I think it's, it's an important question to ask and frame in that way, because there, there can be virtues to both. Um, and so I don't want to ever, I don't want to come across in this class as if I'm romanticizing um, an experience of, a parochial experience of, t of place, right? Now, I, I will think, I do think, at the end of the day, that there is a way of relating to place um, that is important and vital, um, but without, without wanting to romanticize that, I guess, is, is, is what I want to stress. So any corrections along those lines, um, please feel free, free, free to make them or to complicate um, some of the, even the phraseology that we're, we're using here. Um, the, the Maclay, I think, is summarizing, um, you know, something I think in some respects is, is sort of generally true. So, so modernity, the experience of, 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 um, of an identity crisis, I think is, is just endemic to modernity, to the modern world. Um, we, we eventually, having severed, right, all of the ties that sort of ground and anchor our identity, uh, in family, in local community, in place, uh, in, a voc in, a, in, in a tradition of vocation that is passed on from generation to generation, um, then we are tasked, especially in, in the Romantic period, with becoming those who fashion our identity, the novo, right, out of the blue, uh, ex nihilo, as it were, right? You, you are who you make yourself to be. Uh, and so we are, we are in the modern world sort of launched on this project of continual identity formation, creation, um, performance, it becomes, I think, in the 20th century. Um, I think we're, we're at a place where we're sort of exhausted with that project at this point in our society. But that's another, another question for another class. But that, that there is, I think, a genuine um, tie between place and identity, and that, generally speaking, Maclay's formulation is, is probably right, that the more we weaken our sense of place, the more the self sort of 
floats out into this ether where it, it now has the burden of making itself out of nothing, which at the end I think is a sort of an exhausting and fruitless um, endeavor. So there's that. And then without, I don't want to run out of time again, without getting um, to sort of the, this, this sort of scriptural development of the idea of place. And so I highlighted um, a handful of passages. These, these come from very familiar portions of scripture, I think. Um, and again, I wanted to especially look at uh, these really opening chapters um, of, of the Old Testament and to revisit them again in, in light of this question of place. So let me do that here. And, and the ones I've picked out begin with uh, Genesis 2. And in this, this uh, creation account, we read that the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. And that itself, I think, with a thought toward place, is an interesting thing to consider, that there is almost a sort of primordial relationship between the stuff we are made of and, and the place in which we live. Um, but then he goes on, he says, he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And, and what I think this passage su suggests is that we are made to be in place. How, how the, the, the creation of man and the creation of a place for man are presented to us, as it were, in the same breath. Now, I don't want to take too long to sort of go through the, the details here. Um, there's a sense in which I think we ought to interpret the garden uh, as a kind of sanctuary, a, sort of a, a proto-temple, a place where uh, God uniquely meets his people, um, and that it, it wasn't necessarily to be the place where, where human beings were to live always and forever. Of course, they, are, they were commanded to, to be fruitful, multiply, and spread over the face of the earth. But that nonetheless, there was a kind of preparation of a place that was proper to man, that was essential to man's flourishing. And then with that in view, when we then go on to consider the, the fall narrative, it is interesting the degree to which um, the, the fall of man leads to a series of dislocations of removals from place, of expulsions, uh, into a state of both physical and spiritual homelessness, right? And so, for example, in Genesis 3.24, towards the tail end of the fall narrative, we read that he drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and flaming sword that turned away to guard uh, the way to the Tree of Life. And so there's this expulsion from the place for which man had been made, the place that had been made for man, and then those two are familiar, right? I think those are, um, are, are readily familiar to us. And I, I think this, there is this link between the garden, it is a place for man as a physical place, but it also was the place of communion with God, with the creator. And that what, what is the state of man after the fall is a, an alienation both from a, an environment that is for us and also from the God who created us and for whom we were made. Then Genesis 4 presents to us um, the story of Cain and Abel. Again, it is very familiar. It's a familiar story. Um, and, and yet there's an aspect to it that I, that I want to pay special attention to, and that is the degree to which Cain's curse was to, re, was to essentially be alienated from place. So he, um, we read in Genesis 4, 12b, and then I skip to 16 in, in this, um, what I've excerpted there. 
it, God says to Cain, you shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And there's this, this continual reference to, to this movement eastward from Eden, right? This, this um, uh, further and further away, the, the human race moves away from the place for which it was meant, uh, or the place that was vital to its, uh, to its flourishing, we'll put it that way. And the, the interesting thing here is that in, in the parts that I um, sort of skipped out there, you'll remember uh, Cain sort of argues with the justice of the curse that has befallen him, um, and, and he is far from repentant, uh, and there's then a genealogy that kind of evolves out of this that traces the line of Cain, and it concludes um, with the, the flourishing of, of certain aspects of human culture in the line of Cain, and then paired with it is the genealogy of Seth. But one, one of the things that I think is sometimes um, skipped over in this story is a, a tiny sort of detail that, that's embedded in the idea of the, the, the land of Nod, right? So most of your Bibles will have a little asterisk that tells you that Nod uh, is, is the Hebrew word for wandering. And so there's a kind of paradox here in, in what Cain is doing, and, and I think it's one that the author means us to, to pick up on. So he drives Cain out, and, and he is to be a fugitive and a wanderer. But when Cain goes away from the presence of the Lord, the, what he does is he settles. And then when we begin to read the genealogy that flows out of this, this narrative, we read that um, there is a city that Cain has built that he is named uh, his son after, or that, that is named after his son. And so notice the tension here, right? God says that you will be a wanderer, and to that, Cain's response is, no, I will settle, right? I will find um, stability, security, permanence. And I want us to read the story of Cain, um, I, I won't necessarily say in an allegorical way, but as having a kind of universal resonance, right? That somehow it speaks not just to the events that transpired um, in the life of the people who are the subjects of the story, but that it also speaks to the human condition in, in an important way, right? That, that we are all, having severed our relationship to God, we all find ourselves in the place that Cain finds himself, that, that we are all alienated from God, and that in that state of alienation, we are condemned to a state of wandering, of placelessness, uh, not just physically, but even more importantly, uh, spiritually morally, and that the impulse for us is to resist that state of alienation. We, we want to find uh, a home, both literal and spiritual. Um, and so what goes on to happen here is that Cain, like I mentioned earlier, the line of Cain culminates in this flourishing of human culture. Um, the way I read this is to, to read it as a story that suggests to us that all of, of human striving that happens outside of the realm of grace, in some respects, is, a, is, is the human effort to overcome the conditions of our alienation as a result of our sin and, and our um, separation from God. That we, we strive to achieve what can only be achieved through our, a, a renewal of our communion with God but in every other, in every way possible except through a, a restoration of that communion, right? And this culminates, interestingly, 
in the story of the Tower of Babel, where you have this, this sort of ultimate refusal of the, the condition of wandering, uh, this attempt through human artifice to find uh, security, stability, significance, right? We shall make a name for ourselves, a sense of purpose, a sense of, of, of belonging in, in the construction of this tower. And of course, we know the judgment that befalls that effort. And then we know then that immediately on the heels of that comes the, the word of grace to Abraham, the promise uh, to make of him a great family, to give him a land, right? An inheritance that will be his, a place where his people will, will be able to, to, to call home. And that we, that is matched then by another tower, the one that Jacob sees uh, in his dream, right? It's a, sometimes translated staircase or stairway, but in fact, uh, more likely what we are to imagine, sort of this, the, a, a tower with steps that is on the model of the ancient ziggurats. And it is the, the tower not built by human hands, but built by God, which then of course finds its fulfillment in Christ who, who tells Nathaniel that he will see angel, the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man, just as Jacob saw the angels of God ascending and descending on this tower, which represents the, the work of grace to reconnect uh, humanity and, um, and, and God. And so I, that's a very quick, obviously, a very quick schematic of, of these sort of salient episodes in Scripture that are all, I think, connected with this reflection on the human condition as being one of alienation, that goes back to our, our expulsion from, from Eden, right? Our, our loss of, of, of our um, prelapsarian relationship to God. And that it throws us into this state of, um, of separation, of alienation, of wandering, of being lost, and des but desiring the opposite, right? Um, in, in its most metaphorical sense, right, we, we are longing for a home, um, a home that is ours, just in terms of, um, of, of our physicality, but I think even more importantly in this larger sense of a sense of belonging, a sense of place. So I, let me just th throw in these last two passages here that I've cited, and then I'll pause and we can take the, the remainder of our time to sort of discuss these ideas uh, or, or what you think of them, of, of this presentation. Um, and it is to remind us that we, we are referred to in the New Testament quite often, here are two instances, uh, as those who are still, in some sense, sojourners and exiles, right? So for example, in Hebrews 11, um, these all died in faith, thinking of the, the, the Old Testament saints, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. And then in First Peter, um, beloved, Peter writes, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, etc., and wage war, which wage war against your soul. But this idea that we are sojourners is in exile. Those metaphors suggest a continuing state of um, not quite alienation, but certainly a sense that we are still on our way, right? And that so is, importantly, the, the, the state of the Christian is not necessarily one who has made it home, but remains in an important way on, on the way. And so that all, I think, needs to be part of the picture when we think about place in its multiple dimensions and how we relate to place. So let me pause there. Um, I realize you know, I went on for a while there, but um, 
But I hope that generated some, some thoughts on your part, or certainly curious to know um, what questions it raises or what um, criticisms it raises. Um, so let me, let me ask, ask you that. What, what do you all think about that? Yeah, if, if I may. Yeah. I'm sort of interested in maybe, maybe defining terms a little bit. Mm -hmm. or, uh, yeah. I struggle with this idea, um, uh, uh, this contradiction, maybe. I, I, maybe I wonder how permeable identity is. Mm -hmm. right? uh, on, on one hand, I want to say like, oh, there's almost a platonic essence, right, of you, mm -hmm. right? And that if I dropped you somewhere else, that essence hasn't changed. You are still mm -hmm. you. Right. Your geography has changed, mm -hmm. and uh, and that has ramifications. But it's very much not to you, right? It is other from you, uh, wherever you are. Uh, at least, if, if, especially talking about physical place. Uh, on the other hand, I can appreciate the fact that part of our essence or part of our identity is ones who are becoming, and so the factors that influence that becoming uh, very much would relate to place. Mm -hmm. And I'm fine with that, but like. To say place gives me identity um, or is essential for the cultivation of identity. So I, I struggle with, I wonder if it's, and maybe, maybe I'm just too caught up in modernity or whatever, this idea of like presently we've stopped or, or we have diminished the role of place in our becoming in favor of other things um, uh, or in shaping our identity or whatever. Uh, or maybe we're just not appreciating what place does. But again, it's still, I don't want to say place gives me identity as much as it is something with which I interact, and uh, but it's very much separate from my identity, uh, I think. that's At least that's my initial reaction. So uh, again, some of it feels overstated, I mm -hmm. guess, uh, to summarize. Yeah. Um, Brian, in response to that, can I ask, when you say identity, um, I want to clarify, this is kind of a rough clarification, um, do you mean like um, identity as in being what you are, or do you mean having a sense of um, being a distinct person? Um, I guess, yeah, my inclination is, uh, I guess, maybe more the former i'm not i'm, I'm, I'm having trouble parsing uh that like if you're saying if the latter one was you're unique you're a special snowflake or a star or whatever um that's fine everyone can be or everyone's special um uh, that's true obviously uh but like rather like that that there's something there, there is an essence right uh there is a core or whatever of, of who you are um and who you've been made to be and then there are there are external things to that there are add-ons or whatever. So, uh, your role as a student is not uh, you could, you could call it an identity, but I'd say it's a role that the that the person who is David right is doing at UF. It's not. I would not call that an identity. I would call it a role. And maybe that's the distinction I'm making. Okay. I guess uh, what I'm thinking really is like, I guess the what and the who. Um, because I think that when I think of identity, um, I imagine that there is an actual you. Like I know that the, the Buddhists would say that there is no actual you. you you're just an amalgamation of parts. Um, but I do think there's an actual you um, that is that sustains and is maintained 
throughout the course of whatever your life is. Um, and that when I think about it, yeah, I guess that's why I'm asking this is because that's how I think about identity. Um, but then we also use identity in another way as in like how I express myself um, or how I think of why I'm um, special or what I, what I tie myself to. Uh, and that's why I wanted to clarify what you're saying about identity. Does that change anything? Honestly, I'm not sure. Uh, I don't think more, or like try to understand yeah. it. Sorry, David. <laughs> no, the who and the what distinction I thought was really interesting. Um, because I, I don't disagree, Brian, that we are not infinitely malleable, right? Um, so one thing that drove this home to me very, very profoundly um, was having two children. And it was very interesting. So the first time you don't know what to expect, and uh, you know why my wife was pregnant, and uh, and she has a certain experience of of, of the baby in utero, right? Literally, uh, sort of feeling the baby, its patterns, its rhythms, da 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 da. Uh, then the second comes along, and and of course I'm relying entirely on my wife's reports here, right? Uh, but it's a very different in utero experience. Like the second one was always moving, um, always active, kicking, surging through, you know, my, my wife's belly uh, to the degree that when uh, at one occasion late in the pregnancy, uh, when she seemed to be at rest, we freaked out and went to the hospital because we thought something was wrong. Um, and so what now what's interesting about that is that five years, well, now my oldest is five, my youngest is three and a half. Um, that makes perfect sense. My, my youngest is, is crazy. Um, she never stops moving. Uh, it's her personality. She's wild. She was, you know, climbing over things at nine months old. Uh, she, she is fearless. My younger, my oldest is, is much more sedate and happy and da da da. And, and what is astonishing about that is that somehow there was something about that aspect of who they are that was already manifest in the womb, right? Before any experience of culture, before any experience of, of nurture, right? So I say that to, to, to agree with you that there, we are not infinitely malleable, right? If I was, um, you know, sort of stolen from the hospital and dumped in Mumbai, India and grew up there, I would both be similar, but then also dissimilar to who I am today, I guess, right? So there's some kind of, of um, uh, biological substrate, perhaps we could say, without being genetically deterministic, that there's none of those, some, some substrate of who we are that arises from our, our genetic inheritance um, that is, that is uh, irrevocable, right? It is just what it is. Um, but then the question, I suppose, is how that gets elaborated as we age and grow and mature, as we're nurtured, you know, what experiences make us the sort of person that we end up becoming so that it is both a, a sort of a being and become becoming simultaneously right that our overall identity our sense of self um, is in, in relationship with these two things um, it builds upon one but then gets shaped over time so I wouldn't say place defines us but I would say it shapes us right the person who grows up uh, in the seaside village versus the person who grows up in the mountainside or the person who grows up in an intensely urban setting because we are embodied creatures and we're not sort of platonic essences, it, it's, it seems to me uh, unavoidable that they will be stamped, as it were, right? That they will be formed by those experiences in a way that will become an important part of their identity so that, you know, David, upon returning to New York, feels something there, right? There, there's some 
some aspect of who he is that, that, that owes itself to that upbringing. And forgive me, Dave, I'm speaking for you out of turn, but you know, that seems to be what you were describing earlier. Um, so that it is a, a tension we hold, right? Um, does, that, does that make sense? Or, I mean, does that address the, the kind of concern? No, yeah, I, I, I affirm that for sure. I guess it's just reading it, both um, the quotes last week yeah. and then the, uh, the quote from Mick, whatever his name uh, Yeah, McClay, yeah. 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 Uh, both felt, like I said, it felt like they were saying something beyond that. Yeah. And, uh, that if I dropped you somewhere else, you are now a different person. I was like, well, hold up. Um, I mean, yes and no, I guess, is the answer, right? Um, and, and, and what, you know, it, we can't, there's no control group, <laughs> you know, to, to determine uh, what exactly would change, right? There's no alternative universe in which I do meet me grown up in Mumbai or whatever, you know. Um, but, it, but it does seem that, yeah, I would be different if I grew up um, in a different place. I, but I would still be, and maybe in some sense, recognizably me. Um, it's an, I guess it's a, you know the, the nature nurture question of course, um, and I think we have to give due place to both, and maybe there's just a degree to which we, you know, may disagree about which one is is emphasized or if it's emphasized too much, but but certainly it seems like both are are always in play. But yeah, I I yeah, yeah. I, I'll affirm that. Yeah. And I think I think saying growing up in a different place versus taking uh, right like someone who is more who has who has become more, whatever, right? Like someone who's more developed, right? Like I, I imagine dropping you now in Mumbai versus you 35 years ago in Mumbai. Yeah. The, you know, the effect of that yeah. drop is profoundly different. So that we become a little less malleable over time. Yeah, yeah, I think there's probably something to that. Yeah, definitely. I still suspect that changed some though. Um, yeah, you know, but but yeah, there would be there would be um, maybe a less pronounced effect than what happens in childhood, certainly. Let me just oh, actually, we're out, we're out of time. Think about the biblical stuff though, um, and uh, two things. One, before I forget, and then we'll let us I'll let you all go. Um, feel free to email me at any point, and uh, you know, with questions or comments or whatever. Uh, but also, uh, both Dr. Horner and I are, are going to try to keep office hours, as it were, here in, in Pascal's. Um, in fact, kind of very near to where Angela is sitting, just across the way from her. Um, and uh, I'll, I'm trying to remember exactly what we've designated for that. But uh, Mondays for me, from noon to one, um, I'll kind of make a point of just sitting out there. Uh, and then today, actually, a little bit after this class, maybe from about two to three, I think, is when I'm slated to be out there. So just know that we, we want to kind of, in, in whatever safe way possible, still retain something of, of the, the in-person experience. Uh, even if you're not in the in-person class. And so if you ever want to chat, and if there's another time that's convenient for you, please feel free to reach out and we can set up an appointment and, and come and sit out here and, um, and chat about any of these things. So basically, both Dr. Horner and I want, when you all know we're available. Um, thank you for being part of this, and uh, we'll see you next week then. Okay. All right.